This Week in Startups is brought to you by Clavio helps brands build relationships across any distance, delivering email marketing moments your customers will appreciate, remember, and share in good times and bad. Visit Clavio.com slash twist today to start your free trial. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash twist. SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes. Save time and money no matter what you ship or mail. Try it free for 30 days and get a free 10-pound scale when you visit pb.com slash twist. And Dell for entrepreneurs. Level up your hardware today and save up to 43% by going to dell.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. I'm recording this on May 5th, so not May the 4th be with you, but May 5th, the day after Star Wars Day, and we're in the middle of the global pandemic, but things feel like they're getting better in some ways. Uh, There's still a lot of concern out there. People are still scared, and we carry on here on the podcast. In fact, we're doing more than ever, and I think that this is the big lesson for uh, all of us, not take for granted what we had before this pandemic. Uh, and maybe appreciate what this new world is going to be. Uh, there's going to be a lot of problems, going to be a lot of challenges, but there's going to be a lot of opportunities. And it feels like we've got a pretty good handle on how to save people's lives. And the human tragedy of this is just shocking uh, to a level that, you know, if you if you just obsess on that, I think you don't get out of bed in the morning. When New York City hit 900 people a day, I just had this moment uh, in this flashback to 9-11 when I watched, you know, 3,000 people uh, or so died that day. And I just thought, wow, it's it's a 9-11 every three days. And when you start thinking about it that way, and you start thinking about the number of people who have died, it really is staggering. But uh, we will get through it. And we're making great progress. And I think optimism and hope is the only thing uh, that you have right now. And so you got to lean into that, as well as social distancing, wearing masks, and generally being intelligent about that uh, and those issues. We've talked a lot about people's lives, obviously, but we also need to talk about people's livelihoods. And the startup community is what creates jobs in the world, right? And that's important too. And we're starting to already see with 30 million people unemployed or some number around there at this time, who knows how high that gets and who knows how quickly those people get their jobs back. And it's created a lot of tension. A lot of people are on tilt, a lot of arguments uh, on Twitter, in Slack rooms, on my iMessage threads with my group messaging, with friends from New York, with friends from the Valley, with friends from LA. Everybody's got a different take on this. And, and, And that is expected because we've never been through this before. This is a, a global pandemic that seems like something that happens once every 100 years or so. And, ho- and hopefully uh, that is the case, that we don't have this happen every 10 years. So give a little space to people who have a difference of opinion from you. Uh, there are people who work behind keyboards like us, many of us on this podcast, who are not impacted. And then there's 25% of Airbnb employees who have lost their jobs today and their hopes, their dreams. Many of them probably had shares of that company hoping it would IPO. And, you know, they're not the frontline workers. They're not the the folks that we first thought about, waiters, uh, people working at the Warriors Arena, people at Disneyland. Now we're starting to see a second wave of people. We're starting to see white collar workers because these big companies, and listen, I'm on these boards, I'm on these phone calls every day. And boy, has my life gotten surreal where 
literally every day, there's two or three board phone calls, two or three founders calling in addition to that, uh, where I'm not on the board, and they're just cutting staff. And the cuts are getting deep. And the cuts, in some cases, people are being let go out of an abundance of caution from CEOs who are just not sure about the future. And these are not, uh, you know, insignificant jobs in the world. These are jobs that are six-figure jobs in some cases, which then create multiple jobs thereafter. The, the trickle-down theory, which is much maligned, but there is a reality to that, which is somebody who makes $150,000 a year uh, as some executive at Airbnb or another company, you know, they might have a, a nanny, they might have a tutor, and they might be cutting those now. And so the fallout from this is going to be greater than I think some people imagine. And we need to really start thinking about employment, uh, getting back to work, uh, and doing it safely. And it's a lose-lose situation. And I don't know that in our lifetime, we've been faced with a lose-lose situation where you're just picking, you know, people losing their livelihoods, people potentially losing their lives. And it puts everybody in an extraordinarily painful uh, decision-making process. And so, again, be kind to each other, right? Um, and and everybody's trying to figure this out for the first time. And I, I have... A, I've, I have great sympathy for people on all sides of this. Obviously, you have to. There are employers who are making these cuts. There are people who've had their jobs cut. And there are people who want to go back to work. And then there are doctors and nurses and uh, public uh, health experts who are like, this is a job that will not be safe. It will lead to people dying in some large amount. It's a lose-lose situation. Uh, and, and this is humbling, I think, for all of us. So with that disclaimer, uh, onto the program. I've been uh, looking forward to having Elizabeth Yen, Elizabeth Yen back on the pod. Y you've been on the pod before, yeah? No, first time. Wait, you just, oh, you've spoken at all of our events, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, Elizabeth, I, I first met, I think, when you were at 500 Startups, and since then you've done uh, the Hustle Fund. And we'll talk about that today because uh, you raised your own fund, and you finished this uh, initial fundraising uh, or this fund this $11.5 million fund uh, right before coronavirus hit. Uh, and, and that is, it got to be exceptional timing, yes? Actually, we finished raising last May in last 2019. May, yeah. So, and if you had raised in this May, there would be no chance of raising any money. No, that would be I, really tough. I spoke to an LP uh, and they said, no new funds, no LPs, limited partners, the people who give venture capitalists and investors like us money to invest in startups. They said that no new funds will be funded. The, the whole idea of new funds being created is now over for the next five years or so uh, while the, the venture industry works through it. Tell us, what was the process of raising your first fund, the Hustle Fund? I think, you know, having been a founder before, I knew that fundraising was all about a numbers game. So just to give you some context on our fund one for Hustle Fund, we pitched over 700 people and we just knew that there would be some percentage that would hopefully close and that was the case. 700 uh, pitches. That's right. And do the majority of these occur online or in person? I'm curious. Uh, mostly in person. So a very different world than what people are going through now to pitch. And this sent you all over the country and or world? I would take it. We mostly pitched people in the San Francisco Bay Area. We did actually have some luck converting some people online who were not in the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, we did not actually travel very much to do our fundraise. 
And of 700 meetings, how many, just ballpark, would become an LP? In other words, you have 150 LPs and it wound up being 20% of people or 5% of people, 10% of people. What, what number of people? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, per SEC rules, you can't have more than 99 investors, which is, frankly speaking, a real pain in the butt. Uh, but so to that end, we have fewer than 99 LPs, and it's actually very close to that number. So roughly 10%. Got it. And you can do 250, but you have to cap it at 10 million. Did you consider that option? Of- that wasn't around back then. Ah, right when you started. So the the fund formation rules now have changed. Would now that that's come out and, and you beat the ten million by a million five, would you have done two hundred fifty and a lower check size per person, knowing that is now the case? Yeah, it's actually a good question. We we might have considered it, and now that I think about it, actually we closed that fund in uh, May of two thousand eighteen, not two thousand nineteen. Yeah, so it was a while ago. Yeah. yeah, but I do think that that would have worked well per our strategy because this was a strategy of going after high net worth individuals. Mostly we didn't approach institutionals. We pitched a handful of fund of funds, but mostly we felt like it was relationship building. We didn't actually think anybody would close from that group of people. So if you're going after individuals, then trying to go after more individuals seems like a faster strategy. When when you pitch an individual to be in a venture fund, of the individuals you pitched out of 100, how many had been in a venture fund already and how many had never invested in a venture fund? And then how does the process change with those two groups of people? Almost all of our individual LPs, our investors, had never invested in a fund before. Wow. So you're not only educating them on what you're doing, you're educating them on what it means to be an LP in a venture fund. That's right. And you know, that that works both ways. It's both opportunity. You're opening up a new pool of would-be investors, but because of the education piece, to a certain extent, it could be a little bit scary, right? Like, what if they don't really fully understand what they're getting into after, you know, all of our explanations around just how risky this is, they could lose all their money, et cetera. What is the expectation for somebody who's putting money in, and in your case, it's an average check size of 100K? This is a high net worth individual. That means they likely have millions of dollars in net worth. So this is a small percentage of it. Why do you think they're doing it? Is this something new for them that they want to explore? And this is a great way to make a small bet and get an education. Is it because they want to support you and the vision for the fund? What what do you, when you look into why they made the decision, what did they tell you and what do you infer? Yeah, so I think... um Our strategy for fundraising is very similar to how I think about B2B sales. Every customer has a persona, and each persona has a particular day in a life and what it is they're trying to accomplish and do in life. And so if I were to dissect our LPs, they have slightly different personas. There are the people who are like, you know, I've invested in stocks and I've gotten some alpha there, but I'm now rich enough where I can allocate a small amount of my wealth towards something really risky, but it could go 100x or something. So that's certainly one group of people. There's the other group of people where they're very mission driven, where it's like, I've done pretty well in my life, but I want to help some other people. And, you know, per our fund model, we actually invest quite a lot. We're a high frequency investor shop. So we invest across geographies and demographics. And so for people who wanted to invest more in underrepresented minorities and women, 
Like our story really resonated as well for another group of people. And then there were other people yet who wanted to network with other LPs, people who didn't have a network in Silicon Valley or didn't know tech investors, but were really strong in real estate or whatnot. So there were just many different customer personas. And we really just tried to understand when we met people for the first time, which category they kind of felt in, because that really dictated the messaging and the story that we we drove home. All right. When we get back from this quick break, I want to try to understand when you're doing one of these funds, which used to be called, I guess, micro VC or a seed fund or an or an angel fund. I guess they use all different words for this. Probably angel and micro fund would be the the typical name of it. And interestingly, my first two funds were ten and eleven million. Um, I want to understand what is the betting strategy with this size fund? Do you make thirty bets of three hundred k each or so, or do you try to make? 100 bets of 100K each? Do you follow on? What's the portfolio strategy? What's the betting strategy with an $11.5 million fund when we get back on this week's Startups? All right. In uncertain times, supporting your community and growing relationships with your customers is going to be appreciated. It's going to be remembered. It's going to be shared. In good times and bad, open and empathetic communication with your customers is key. Email is and always will be the one best channel for this. You know this because I just invited you all by email to the This Week in Startup Slack and so many of you showed up. Email marketing is one of Clavio's core offerings. When you leverage personalization driven by a 360-degree view of the customer, all of your emails to your customers are going to feel more relevant and force a stronger relationship. You're going to see click-throughs go up and unsubscribes go down. Clavio understands how challenging it is for each and every entrepreneur to get their businesses off the ground. You know this because you're listening to This Week in Startups, let alone navigate these trying times. And it is hard right now out there for our founders. If you're feeling overwhelmed with growing your business, especially in this climate, you're not alone. Clavio is here to help brands build relationships across any distance. Create meaningful, memorable email marketing moments that last a lifetime with Clavio. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash twist. Start a free trial today. K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash twist. K-L-A-V-I-Y-O. Yo. dot com slash twist. Thanks, Clavio, for making an awesome product and supporting independent media like this week in startups. All right, Elizabeth Yin is with us. She is Dunk Hippo thirty three on the Twitter, uh, and I, I I I have to. I'm obligated to ask for the audience what is the obsession with hippos. I see you have a hippo land behind you as your <laughs> stunning virtual background on Zoom, and uh, your your Twitter handle is Dunk Hippo thirty three. What is this about? Oh, it's just a fun little thing from when I was a kid. Nothing really that interesting. But many years ago when I was a teenager, I a friend told me I should really get the email address drunkhippo33. So I have that persona as well on a bunch of different, you know, channels. Got it. Uh, so it was your online handle, basically. Yep. I was the cyber surfer because back in the day we liked Silver Surfer, the comic book and then cyberpunk came out and I became the cyber server. That was my online handle back in the but day. But you don't use it anymore? I don't use it in professional context. But yep. if you go to Burning Man or to, you know, the EDM tent at Coachella, you might see the cyber surfer actually appear. Uh, okay. Briefly, briefly. He, he's kind of like a flash. He, it's very hard to spot him. Uh, but the cyber surfer sometimes does show up at the Sahara tent. Uh, I've been told. I've been told. Uh, so when we when we left um, for commercial break there, thanks to our sponsors and, and supporters, tell me what the portfolio strategy is. How do you explain it 
to the folks who are investing? And then how do you think about it yourself and how has it evolved since you've started investing? Yeah, sure. So I would say that actually our portfolio construction is um, a hybrid between high frequency investing or spray and pray as many people like to loosely call it and concentrated traditional VC portfolios. So we write a lot of small checks, 25,000. If we've never met you before, we are willing to take that risk. We're willing to take that risk early. We go in at pre-seed. We do not care about traction. We work with you for several weeks on something we call a growth project, um, more as a sounding board around marketing experiments and whatnot. And, um, you know, where we're bullish and where the founder thinks there's a good fit here, we will invest more money. And so we may write a $250,000 check um, weeks, months, or even over a year later. Got it. So in terms of the total number of names in the portfolio, the logos, as we say in the business, what do you think the number of names or logos will be? What is it trending towards? You mean, what is the number of companies that will become well-known? Or no, no, just number of companies total in the fund. Uh, so will you have 100 names in the fund or 50 names in the fund? Yep. 101. 101. That's literally where it's going to wind up. Yep. <laughs> Wait, is that by design or is that just being facetious? We actually have finished our fund you one and it. we're already investing out of fund two. Got it. Um, and so 101 names. Now, what would somebody expect would be the mortality rate of a, of a fund like this without, let's call it 100 names? What percentage would you ex what percentage did you expect to go to zero and what do you think it ultimately will be because you're investing so early that people don't have product market fit they don't even have the product in market so they can't be product market fit that's right yeah so we model between 60 and 70 percent mortality just in general not necessarily within the first year per se but in total throughout the life of the fund and um you know where we are right now we've had uh fewer than 10 that have failed on the 101, um, you know, we're now, whatever, two and a half years into the fund. Now, of course, not everybody was a company we invested in on day one. So some of these companies are a lot newer. But I think we'll find out in the next year or two whether it starts to approach 60 or 70. That being said, as you know, Jason, very well, yeah. that it's not about the number of failures. It's about how many companies do you have that go on to be huge hits, like 100x or more, 1000x would be wonderful. But the number of those is really what drives the returns of the fund, not who survives. Surviving, of course, is the first step to becoming one of those, but sure. but that's not what drives the returns. Which is where I was sort of going next. When when do you know if you have an outlier? When do you know if you have a hundred x? And just so people who are listening understand what we're talking about here, we're not talking about a hundred percent gain in value. We're talking about turning that twenty five thousand dollars not into fifty thousand or not into two hundred fifty thousand, but going 100x, now we're talking about hitting 2.5 million on that uh, on that investment. When will yeah. you know if you have any of those? Do you have any of those? Is it too early to tell? Well, I think that there's, a, to some extent, some cheating where we rolled in our angel investments at cost into fund one. Oh, prior angel investments. I'm sorry? You took your prior angel investments and rolled That's them right. in. That's right. Oh, such a smart strategy. Well, I mean, we also gave up some good gains, right? So, for example, my business partner, Eric Bond, wrote one of the very first angel checks into Webflow. And I know you've had Vlad oh, on your show before. Oh, wow. Yum, yum. 
So, you know, that uh, he gave up personally a lot of money that is now being shared with our LPs, right? Um, but it does then show some credibility. So we're taking results from, let's call it, you know, 2013, 2014, and moving them into our fund one, essentially. I got asked to do that too with like my Uber investment and, um, you know, some of the other investments, Thumbtack, where the people said, hey, if you're going to start a fund, why don't you put your Uber shares in there? This is when Uber <laughs> was based at 10 billion. And they're like, yeah, put the Uber shares in there. Then whatever the gains are from 10 billion forward to 50, 60 billion, wherever it is today, um, we would we would get to participate in that. And I, I declined to do that. But I said, you know, if, if a person could hit those, but I think that's actually a really great strategy. Now that did you lead with that? And we that led was, with that. Yeah. yeah, nobody asked us to do it. We led with it. But so we have some good ones in there. So there's Webflow, which I think, you know, anybody who's watched your show is familiar with. But we also have Nerd Wallet in there. Very nice. And um, there's a company called The Pill Club. Oh, that's um, well, Boom yeah. Supersonic. So all of those are are in there as well. Boom Supersonic's an interesting one. I met with them and I, I passed on investing and I actually had them on the podcast as well. Um, explain to people what Boom Supersonic is. It's basically a new kind of airplane, a supersonic plane. And I think unlike many of the others, which have much more market or customer acquisition risk, in the case of them... There's a market for sure if they can make the plane, right? Like who who doesn't want to go faster to Japan? Like yeah. cut the time in half. But the risk is technical. Like can they do it? Can you ship product, et cetera? So there's like a high execution risk on that one. Uh, but if it does work, oh my Lord. And it's just fascinating when I got that pitch from them that when you think about it, people gave up uh, on trying to make flights faster because, you know, let's burn less jet fuel. That, that's virtuous. Um, maybe people care more about cost, but there is a segment that actually could use getting to places quicker. And boy, will that be interesting if they actually succeed. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> Do you know where they're at? I know I, I, I follow the the founder. I forgot his name right now. It'll come to me Blake. in a moment. Blake, yeah. Yes. Uh, what, uh, yeah. Look up what episode Blake was on, just so I can shout it out. Blake from Supersonic, um, or from Boom. Uh, is it Boom? What is the name of it again? Yeah, Boom. See, that was the thing. I don't know if they should have called it Boom because they don't want to remind people that you get a sonic boom over land. But I think they're trying <laughs> to uh, mitigate against that. But still, there's plenty of oceans to be traversed uh, in a fast <laughs> way. But I think the last time, I think they have like a prototype. They've been flying like a small version of it, right? Yeah. Um, oh, actually, I don't know if it's flying. I know I've seen the smaller versions of it. I I don't know. I don't think it's flying, but yeah, yeah they're they're in prototype phase, is what I would call it. Yeah, it's episode six eight three for those of you. I'm sorry, six three eight six three eight for those of you uh, looking to to see uh, the early days. I I saw them. They were through Y Combinator at some point. Um, and so in this portfolio strategy, if you had one go 200x and you had put in 100k bet size uh, that's 20 million in returns or so and uh, you need only one to double everybody's money is that the basic math that people should expect you just got to hit one to to double money and if you were to put that money into the stock market in the same period of time the likely scenario is double so they're literally if you're an lp the bet you're making is can this person and can this team hit one outlier Yes and no. So uh, that's absolutely the math. It doesn't account for dilution. If you assume you're going to get diluted down mm. 50% because the company goes on to raise three more rounds of funding after you, 
then you basically break even on the fund. So I do need more than one mm. to work out to that level. But then for every additional one that you have, that's basically an extra multiple. And so that is the simple answer to that. Yeah. And on the 101 initial companies that we invest in, the question is, do we have one in there to break even and that we've identified as one of those? And then do we have any additional ones to bring additional multiples that we can identify? Now, if one goes 1,000x, what then happens? Then it doesn't really matter. <laughs> if one goes 1,000x... Then we're Jason Calcanis with Uber. Yeah, or Chris Saka, right. Um, <laughs> and it is a, it's a very interesting approach. I think when you think about it as a gambler, and there is a lot of risk here. You've, you've brought that up, um, and, and, you, and you do need to have that conversation with LPs, only invest what you can afford to lose. Really, when you think about it, the likely scenario, or, or it seems like a likely scenario that a person could return the fund. That does not seem for an investor here in Silicon Valley to be an outrageous claim. Hey, we're going to return the fund. So then, and this is what I, you know, I kind of wrote in my book and kind of pushed people towards is I kind of feel like if you're an investor here in the Valley, given the deal flow that we see and the network you can build here, um, if you have a really solid chance of returning the money, then you're almost getting like a free lottery ticket that, but what if, right? That's uh, right. And that's the way I look at this is, listen, I, I'm pretty confident in my ability to return the money and- what if, what if yep. you hit something? Oh my lord! Um, and that, I mean, that's why I'm in, I'm in eleven other funds. I think that are not mine because oh my lord, if one hits, yeah, this just could be an incredible outcome. It's interesting because I think at this point in time, there's enough data floating around. Like people have invested in enough startups as a population. To show a couple things. One is what you mentioned is in Silicon Valley, there are certainly a lot of these big hits. And I think part of it is a mindset and part of it is uh, early investors do not try to pull their money out early because they know if a company's onto something, they should let it ride. So I think that's one one thing. And then the second thing is you have to be in enough companies to be able to get enough shots on goal. I think traditionally when people previously were either angel investing or funds were only investing in 10 companies, then that's a really you know, very luck dependent activity. But if you have 30 and you have decent deal flow, if you have 50 and decent deal flow or 100, then your chances of hitting something get a lot, lot better. All right, we'll get back from this quick break. I want to know your strategy when you have a small fund like this, you don't have massive cash reserves. So if you do hit a winner and you do have what most people here will understand, pro rata, the ability to maintain your percentage ownership, how does one with a micro fund actually execute on pro rata or do you let it go when we get back on this week in terms? With SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes, you can simply print postage stamps and shipping labels even when you're working remotely. Yes, for as low as $4.99, that's $4.99 a month, you'll get access to special discounts and save up to 40% off USPS Priority Mail. Plus, for being a This Week in Startups listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started and a free 10-pound scale to ensure that you never overpay, which always made me crazy. Some SendPro Online benefits include printing shipping labels and stamps. 
even when you're working remotely. Scheduling packaging pickups is easy, and tracking shipments from departure to arrival is seamless. And you're going to save up to $0.05 cents on every letter and up to 40% off USPS Priority Mail. If you don't know what Priority Mail is, it's a great deal. Starting at $4.99 a month, that's $4.99. You can also calculate the exact postage online, print right from your PC or Mac, and avoid trips to the post office. Go ahead and visit pb.com slash twist to access this special offer for a free 30-day trial plus a free 10-pound scale to get you started. That's pb.com, a really short domain name, slash T-W-I-S-T to experience huge savings in your shipping costs with a free trial of SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes. Let's get back to this amazing episode. All right. Uh, born and raised in Mountain View uh, and still living in the peninsula, Elizabeth Yin is with us. She is the general partner and co-founder of the Hustle Fund. You can visit hustlefund.vc. They like to put in 25K and then maybe put in a little bit more. Uh, I hate the term spray and pray. I think <laughs> this is uh, a portfolio and a funnel approach is what I've come to call it. It's a funnel approach. We should trade uh, decks and uh, do a little uh, LP swapping maybe at some point. But uh, That's a good phrase too. <laughs> what's that? Funnel approach. A funnel. It's a really is a funnel approach. I think spray and pray was a derogatory statement because people looked at Ron Conway who had such amazing deal flow and was so willing to make a lot of 25, 50, 100K bets back in the day that they said he was spraying and praying. But in truth, what you and I are, and I don't know what his follow-on investment thesis was. I don't know if there was one, but you know, my thesis is to, is to keep that pro rata and go super pro rata. So I'm mm-hmm. curious um, if you, what your approach is to pro rata. Yeah. So... I think our approaches are actually fairly similar because you get a lot of information, presumably from your accelerators, you know, how people work, et cetera. And, um, and even what the other mentors think of your companies too. Right. So I think, uh, from the perspective of pro rata, this is really tricky, honestly, for a small fund. And we don't have a syndicate of angels like you do to go to. So I think, frankly speaking, we probably don't manage it very well in the sense that we don't have a lot of extra reserves to be writing much larger checks and also, we don't have an audience to go to and and kind of manage syndicates, et cetera. Mm. So I think for the most part, we pretty much just let it go. I think as part of the strategy, though, you know, I've I've thought a lot about pro rata and whether it even makes sense. You know, certainly when I was at 500 startups, it didn't necessarily make sense because you're getting in at such a great valuation in the first place. And then you're thinking about, do you keep your stake and pay up 5x in price? Or do you invest in five new accelerator companies? And in most cases, if you're running an accelerator and you have generally good deal flow, it is much better to invest in five new accelerator companies because you are more likely to get a big hit within those five shots on goal than it is to follow on in this company that's still relatively early Mm. and you're paying up for. So that's kind of my general thinking. We don't get in at accelerator terms in the way that you do or 500 or YC or Techstars or any of these. But we do you try do to get go in, in early. quite early. You get in at three, four, yeah. five million dollar valuations. I would yeah. su- suppose exactly. If you That's are our sweet getting spot. Getting in when um, the startup has is prior to launch. Correct. Yeah. Average three, four, five, something like that. Yep, three, four, five. Perfect. Yeah, and then if you look at the implied valuation uh, for an accelerator, getting six, five, six, or seven percent is typically what accelerators ask for for a hundred to one hundred fifty. You're implying about a two million, so it's not really that far off. Um, 
But I think what you said there that was very interesting, and I want to unpack two of these points. One is, should you get five more shots on goal, that could potentially pay off 100 to 1,000 X, or should you do the pro rata? And so people understand, well, you know, your pro rata might, if the company did go 5X, it might be $500,000 to maintain that position versus simply putting 100K into five more companies. That really does make sense. But the other piece that you said that was very interesting, I think, is getting to know the company and having that inside information. So you do have the funnel, a 25 get to know you check, and then potentially, I guess, 100 to 250K uh, into let's make this a deeper partnership. Explain to me what you need to see to write that larger check. And then how do you deal with a founder who you don't write the larger check for and the bad feelings that could emerge? Yeah, for sure. So our thinking is, and this is actually very market dependent. So we want to write that second check as soon as we can. Like we want to figure this out as soon as we can, but in practice, we don't always. Um, when we write the second check, historically, it's been over a year later. And on occasion, it's been a few weeks later. So breaking it down, what is it that we're looking for? Well, there are basically two things in my view that are big risks in startups. There's people at the earliest stages. And then there's what I call market pull. Like, does, does, is this a big problem? Do people want this? Do the unit economics kind of work? And that's kind of all of that lumped into this one phrase market pull. So for the people, when you work with people, you actually really learn a lot. It's pretty akin to hiring, right? Like you can hire somebody on a contract basis. And even if it's only for a couple of weeks, you get a lot of information about how somebody works. And do you work well with the person? It's not just is the person smart or competent, but it, do they work well with you? Do they work well in the way that you would hope that they would work well? I think from our view, we're looking for founders who can execute with speed. So learn new things quickly. Can you, you know, be very um, sales oriented? Those are the kinds of things that we tend to look for in our teams. And it's not to say that other teams who don't do that are wrong, but those are the kinds of things we look for. So that's on the team side. And then on the market pull side, that's a lot harder because obviously where we're investing, nobody has product market fit. Nobody's even close to product market fit. And there is not a repeatable sales process by any means at that point. So that's also a gut feeling around, okay, based on the customer development these people have done, does this feel like a real problem? Does their product seem to be a very good solution? We're basically trying to assess like, do we think that you can put a dollar in and get a dollar and one out like later at scale because there's enough of a problem here and because of the initial testing around customer acquisition channels. So it's still very early, but it is better than no information and it's better than looking at people's decks because having previously been on the other side of things at an accelerator and helping people create decks that were always up into the right at demo day, I know that that information is not actually what's happening. Yeah, I mean, there is... Definitely an interesting thing that's happened over the last five to 10 years, which is founders uh, have been mentored so well as to what angel investors look for. The pool of angel investors has increased so dramatically that the ability to game investors and get to a small seed round has become I would say more often than not what founders have learned as opposed to learning how to make a great product that actually has market pull in your in your um, parlance. And that is dangerous. 
yep. to me. And I really try to not have my name on products or services where I feel that's happening. And that is a a big challenge for me, which is, you know, you make that first investment and you're you're super happy that you only wrote, in my case, the 100K check to come to the accelerator. In your case, the 25K check to go into the, the growth hacking kind of mode and the product completion mode. But, oh, my Lord, what if the person doesn't represent you well and you don't want to be associated with them anymore or you're uh, worried that their name and their approach might damage your brand? I completely understand that, having sat there before. Tell me how that you deal with said, that. That being said, yes. So tell me how you deal with it. Like, how do you <laughs> well, deal with I, giving I people to know that I'm not putting more money in, right? So I, that being said, I think, you know, so we're not an accelerator. We don't have accelerator terms. But if we did, it is certainly well worthwhile, I think, to hedge a little bit more and put in more than a 25K check. So that's one thought. Like, yes. I don't think it's a bad thing that accelerators are putting in like a hundred K. I think that actually is probably the right amount, obviously, depending on the fund size. Yeah. Well, with and two then, or three founders, you're talking about six months of runway if they keep it, you yep. know, light. Yep. And you have a good slug in there to get that ownership upfront on those nice terms such that, you know, the multiples are easier than to get. So there's that. But then there's the reputational risk. And I think at this point in time, People realize, and by people, I mean other investors, they realize that, hey, not every company that's either coming out of launch or YC is going to be awesome or amazing, right? That's just not how it works. Right. But people go because they think maybe one of them or two of them will be awesome or amazing. Now, of course, who knows which one or two, but when I go, you know, mentor at your batch, like I'm trying to look for that, that one, that batch or whatever it is. And yeah. so- I think people are educated enough to realize, oh, gosh, Jason, they're not going to think, oh, that one company that Jason picked, they're real clowns and losers. They're not going to, they're not going to pin that on you. They know that that's just how accelerators work. Right. They're going to take the opposite approach, which is, hey, they're, they're, they're risk taking. So which one is going to work? Yep. Unpack for me how you decide to give, to make the second bet. Yeah. So taking those two things. Team and Mark Pohl, essentially, we're, we're looking for early signal on those two things. And frankly speaking, there are no concrete numbers. It's not like, hey, you hit these milestones, we're writing the second check. I think even in assessing people, it's also very subjective, right? But all three of us in the partnership look at both of those things with our company. So it's multiple eyes on a company from those two perspectives and and that's how we decide whether or not to write a second check. I mean, now, sometimes the other thing is sometimes a company is really good at fundraising. And if we don't have conviction around those two things, the deal can still run away from us because now all of a sudden it's at, you know, 50 million posts, or at least maybe last year it was. Hmm. And, and so, you know, there's also the last component, which is, do we think we can get in at terms such that we can get that 100x? Because if it's already a 50 million post and we don't have conviction on those two things yet, even by the time we do, the valuation will probably be too high for us to make money. That's a double-edged sword for you because you got to make that early three, four, five million dollar valuation bet, but they did so well and you did such a good job uh, and they were so capital efficient. You did a good job picking them, maybe mentoring them, and they did such a good job executing that now their valuation is too high for you to make the second bet. Well, so I it, would say in last year's market it was more a factor of they hadn't actually 
proven out necessarily those two things yet. It's not to say that they wouldn't, but very good at fundraising because last year's market was great. Was bonkers. Very different from what we're going into now, though. Great. So let's let's go over that in the next segment. I want to know what you think of the market today in the middle of the pandemic. Here we are in May of 2020. If you're watching this as a historical document, 10, 20, 50 years from now. Uh, and then I also want to know what you think it will be in 2021 when we get back with Elizabeth on This Week in Startups. Have you been itching to upgrade your workstation? Well, Dell for Entrepreneurs wants to help you level up your tech hardware. It was created to support founders by providing resources and tools that help startups grow and scale their technology. Scaling your company means more than just hiring. It means getting high-quality laptops, networks, storage, and printers to provide your employees with the best tools to succeed. I use this, and I have used it for years, the Dell 38-inch Curved Ultra Sharp Monitor. Why do I use this? Why do I give one to every team member for the office and for home? Because with a little USB-C plug into your laptop, boom, your desktop expands. You can have three giant windows open, Slack over here, Notion over here. Uh, And it makes people feel great when they have that giant monitor and they don't have to task switch. That's just one of the many options you can get with Dell for Entrepreneurs. Founders that register for Dell for Entrepreneurs have a wide range of free resources for startups, such as free IT consulting from experts who are ready to help you with any IT-related questions. You get access to capital for buying hardware. With Dell Financial Services, founders can qualify for financing their entire IT project and pay it back in low monthly payments so you don't burn that precious cash. And rewards like earning up to 6% cash back on Dell products. Every founder should take advantage of this program now. Level up your hardware today and save up to 43% by going to dell.com slash twist and registering for Dell for Entrepreneurs. That's dell.com slash twist today to save up to 43% and get this amazing Dell monitor. I actually have a 49 inch one at home. That one is bonkers. I have two computers plugged into it simultaneously. So we can have two different sessions going for two different projects I'm working on. It's a crazy way to do it. Um, you don't have to go that far. I think you just go with the 38. But if you want to go crazy like me, get the 49 inch. That's the future. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to This Week in Startups. What an amazing guest, Elizabeth Yen is here. Always one of the highest rated speakers at our events. And for some shocking reason, which is not my fault, by the way, this is literally my producers dropping the ball. You have not been on the podcast. I am shocked. I, it's only because you've spoken at at least five or 10 of our events, right? Like you're you're a <laughs> perennial judge favorite at our events. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, gosh. I mean, really, I'm going to have to have a sit down with my team for not having you on the podcast until episode 1050 or something, whatever we're at. Hey, um, I, I really want to get into what you think of the moment here and also how you think about downstream investors and what you advise your startups, independent of coronavirus, And let's start with this. What do you think your startups need to show investors? So when you think about downstream investors, the people who are going to make that seed investment of 1 million, 1.5 million, 3 million, you're thinking about maybe Homebrew or Aileen Lee, both of uh, those uh, folks and, and and funds have been on the podcast many times. What do you think of what they're doing and how do you advise your companies to hit the right notes with them? What do they need to do to get their checks, that million, $3 million check? Yeah. So I think part of it is we do help a lot of our companies with the storytelling. I think we generally have a good idea of what, you know, Aileen or Hunter or any of these other folks are interested in. 
Like we regularly talk with people about what themes they're interested in, what they're looking at, etc. But I think even beyond them, like, I mean, let's just play the, the probability numbers. And I'm sure you see this as well in running Accelerator. I certainly saw it at 500 startups and I still see it with Hustle Fund because we have a large portfolio. But the reality is not everybody's going to get their money. Like they do not invest in that many companies. That's not their model. And so there's going to be a whole bunch of companies that won't be able to raise from them. It doesn't mean that they're bad companies. It may mean that it's just not in a favorite space or maybe, you know, it's too slow going or whatever it is. And so I think we kind of hedge in a couple of ways. One is we definitely love companies that are more, um, you know, capital efficient. So we dare very much swing towards B2B. We don't really do a lot of consumer and higher margins. So SaaS, not really marketplaces. There are, of course, exceptions, but we want to believe that a company can survive and thrive even without further capital, whether it's from them or anybody else. But then the second thing that I've done, which I think you've done really well with your syndicate, is we have also built a lot of relationships with angels, people who invest not with funds. They may not be relatively well known. They may have specific interests that are very different from VCs, and they're not necessarily looking for 100x either. There are many reasons, as we discussed in raising my own fund, for why an angel might invest in a company. Same same idea. And so we introduce a lot of our companies to angels, often people whom nobody has ever heard of, but are operators in the Silicon Valley. Yeah, and they're capable of writing a 50 to 250k check because yep. they've made so much money money working at Facebook or Google. And a lot of times... It's non-financial rewards, as you're sort of alluding to there, that drive them. They want to be affiliated with fun projects that they find intellectually stimulating, and they want to be on a winning team. And maybe to them, winning is you know tripling their money or 10xing their money. They're not trying to construct the perfect portfolio. This is less than 5% of their net worth, and their net worth is going up every year. So it's it's almost like their version of going and playing in the World Series of Poker, right? And I think the other thing is, you know, and you've written about this before, which is it's really hard to tell. And there are a lot of companies that don't look like they're unicorns in the beginning, but then end up becoming unicorns without having raised so much money. So like Webflow, whom we mentioned before, is actually a great example where for many, many years, people were not interested in investing. They were selling to basically small designers or small agencies, yeah. small time folks. And just accumulating revenue with their SaaS model. But in the beginning, it's always slow when you're selling to smaller customers. Yeah, that's very, not very really similar what to Canva, like. too. You know, you think about Canva. And yeah. Like, you know, selling $10 Same software, thing. you you, you kind of look silly. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you're selling $10. Isn't that cute? You know, or Squarespace. Oh, you're selling $15 a month. Like, it seems and like a little harder, boutique. What's if that? you're in a geography that yeah. people don't like, like Australia, right? Canva, you mentioned them, right? Yeah. They, People are less excited about investing outside the Silicon Valley. I think that's changing, but a factor. Yeah. I mean, in the, the, the name we came up for this were the Pegasus companies because they fly over a round of funding. Yeah. And boy, for, for people like us who are investing, there is no better moment than a company that you invested in at $5 million, like I did with com.com coming back to you and their next round of funding is $250 million. You're like, well, what happened in between there? And they're like, we made money and we didn't <laughs> dilute the cap table. Yep. I mean, com.com, and they've been public about it, it was $5 million valuation, $250 million valuation, $1 billion valuation. For those of, and for those of you out there, I mean, I, I got to be totally honest. I knew that com was going to be a great company, 
and I really felt they could get to 100,000 paid subscribers. I did not think that they were going to just rip and get to a million paid subscribers. That was a whole different um, sort of uh, outcome that I, I actually was not expecting. What do you think is happening today? And when we look at the third quarter um, of 2020 and then into the fourth quarter, which I'll call the near term, in the near term, what's happening with your portfolio companies and fundraising today and two quarters forward? Let's call it 2020. Yeah. So I think just in general with the fundraising landscape right now, as we all know, we're in a lockdown. A lot of VCs are not used to investing over Zoom. And so it's been just really hard, I think, where people don't already have relationships. And that applies to our companies. I think on our on our large portfolio, uh, only one has raised significant money. And, you know, that founder actually knew that VC from before. And also that founder is a successful founder before. So that is that that's just challenging. Um, but we're going to be going out of the lockdown, hopefully in the next month or so. I'm very optimistic about that. So I think there will be a period of time where I wouldn't say it's easy to fundraise, but we'll be sort of back to normal. Will we be back to normal on valuations? Probably not. I hear murmurings of investors still holding back, especially uh, later stage investors. And so I think that kind of has a trickle down effect to earlier stage investors as well, but there will be activity. So I think for our companies, we're telling everybody to really, you know, have really tight man- cash management. So reduce burn um, as hard as it is, like layoffs may have to happen in most of our companies, even if they're doing well. And I think people need to be able to ride this out for not only 24 months, but maybe even 36 months. And so what does it take wow. to get there? And yeah. that's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so hard to know. And I've always taken the approach of, hey, have 18 months of runway. So you have optionality. And you know what it's been like over this last year or two. Founders have had, in many cases, such an easy time raising 500k, topping off 250, topping off another 500k, and doing five extensions to their seed round, that they kind of got used to like this ATM kind of effect. Like, yeah, there's ATMs out there. I can just go to them. They're called angels and <laughs> seed funds and syndicates. There's always an ATM like within two or three blocks. And now it's as if like there's an ATM like in Napa and then there's one in yeah. like, you know, Portland and there's one out in Tahoe and you got to walk like 10 days to get to it. Like it's not going to be easy. Um, you mentioned that you're optimistic. And I think this is a good place for us to to meditate on for a moment. I too am optimistic. What makes you optimistic about, and listen, where, where I, I don't believe that you're a medical or healthcare expert, but I don't know that. Uh, you, you didn't pivot into this out of medical school, right? <laughs> um, just to be clear, but what makes you optimistic? What makes you optimistic right now, Elizabeth? Well, first, the pessimistic. I mean, we don't have a vaccine yet. So we are probably going to have another wave of this coronavirus thing happening again later this year is my prediction and we may be back in a lockdown and all these other things and the economy is not doing well and so many people are unemployed because of the lockdowns right so that's the that's the pessimistic side of things and that's why i say that cash management is really important but i mean from an optimistic perspective you know look i built my startup i started my company uh during the last recession I left my cushy job at Google in November of 2008, and I started fundraising in early 2009. Perfect I timing. You, I was not, not able to raise any money. Yeah. Uh, and I was an ex-Googler, all that stuff, you know, pretty nice resume, but couldn't raise any money. And I think the reality is if people go in with the mindset of, I'm just going to build this business, 
I think there's always many problems to be solved and money to be made, even in recessions or bad times or lockdowns or viruses. As we see, they may be new opportunities people haven't thought of and even better. So if you go in with that attitude and good cash management, then I think there will be a lot of interesting opportunities. And we are still actively investing at about one company per week. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting that you um, actually went through that cycle and you have that scar tissue to know that it's never a bad time to start a great company. There's never a bad time. And in fact, I was on a board call today. I won't say which company, but they asked me, what do you think we should be doing? And I said, uh, well, the product's selling, right? They're like, yeah, we it's actually selling more because this product happens to be counter cyclical and people who are at home would use it more. Let's leave it at that. Um, and I said... Um, well, I heard, and I don't know if this is true, if that Facebook ads are now like 20 or 30% off. He said, no. Yep. He said, no, it's more like oh, 40 no. or 50. <laughs> oh. And I said, what? And he said, yeah. yeah, it's literally like the early days of Facebook where uh, Facebook ads are like this unbelievable growth hack and Instagram ads and yep. Google ads and YouTube ads. It's all 40, 50% off. And I was like, are you sure it's 40, 50%? They said, well, that's what our CAC is now. It's 40% less. I'm like- well, why are we not hitting the gas? And they're like, well, we wanted to have a board call about that. I'm like, hit the gas. Like, let's get these people into the product now because they also have time on their hands. And I I, I never, my wife would go out and, you know, go to uh, dance classes or exercise classes. And then I never sort of take an online class. And three or four times I've, you know, walked by and she's taking an exercise class on Zoom. <laughs> and there's 10 people on there. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Who are you doing that with? It's like, oh, it's an online site and you just go there and you book it and then you pay 50 bucks or 20 bucks and you can go to a class. And you think about all the founders who are like, I, I want to do this thing where people do workouts from home and nobody ever set up their webcam. Nobody ever, you know, figured out how to set up virtual backgrounds or lighting and now everybody's figured it out, right? So all of these things yep. become wide open, just yep. wide open. And my favorite... um my favorite ramen place in San Mateo, Taishokin, um, with the famous Japanese one opened in uh, San Mateo. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Yoshihiro, who's the guy who's, who uh, owns it here. And uh, I was like, hey, you should do takeout. You know, I was talking to him about Uber Eats. It's like, you know, only we, we really don't want the ramen to be delivered. You know, it's proper to have it here. And we're not sure if it travels. And then he had one, the soupless ramen. Then he did the dipping news, noodle ramen. Now he's got the whole thing. And now he's got a make a ramen kit to make it at home where he yeah. sous vides the entire kit. So you can put it in <laughs> your, yourself and you can like base it. And I was like, he would have never gotten to that if not forced. And there's a $40 pack where you can just make your own ramen party. And I was like, well, I'm ordering that twice a week now, you know? And yep. it's all that creativity now is now on the table. What creativity are you seeing out there in terms of companies really taking advantage of this moment in time? Yeah. I mean, Similarly, I think, you know, I read uh, that there was this bakery in LA that also struggled at first because nobody was coming to their bakery anymore to buy bread. And then they started making bread kits and started shipping those out. And now they do way more revenue off of the bread kits. Of course. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, total I, sense. Yeah. I think it's just who's creative in this market, who wants to just go and, and do. And I think you know, how things used to be in the startup world before, let's call it even 2017 or so, like people got a little bit of money maybe, or they bootstrapped a bit 
and just started getting some results before raising money. I think a lot of entrepreneurs have gotten too used to raising a million, two million, three million dollars for nothing, nothing done. Yeah. And that's just, you know, that's just way too frothy. What do you even do with three million dollars? It's like giving like, a first time director to... who's never even made a short film their first yep. feature. It's like, well, why don't you make a couple of shorts first? You know, like yep. this is why they have the short program at Sundance and other film festivals is so that emerging talent can make a six minute or 12 minute film, spend 10,000 on it and then go earn the right to raise 100,000 to make their documentary like and, and we just went to giving new directors features and boy is that like inadvisable like it's, we're going to go back to bootstrapping I love that back to bootstrapping. And you remember the last time all this stuff hit the ground, Living Social, Groupon, Woot, all these flash sales all became, Vont Privé, I guess, was one, and One King's Lane. There were like all these very interesting save money kind of sites that came out, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's be more independent and do something at home sites this time. It's not about saving money right now. It might eventually be. But it's more about connecting with people and doing something at home. Very interesting. Like you, when we look back on this, what the legacy of it will be. What do you think the What do you think the 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 permanent changes will be? Assuming we solve this in the like next year or so, what do, What do you think? You know, twenty twenty two, twenty twenty five, in that time frame, the the permanent uh, ramifications of this pandemic will be on startups. Yeah. So the top two areas that I'm looking at right now very actively are anything involving working from home you know i i think that's going to stay for many professional workers Agreed. like why go to the office i think initially people were not good at coordinating with colleagues or whatever but now that we've had to do it for so long some people have learned how to do it so so that's one area that i'm really bullish on that will stay and then the second area is we've done a handful already of like telemedicine investments but I think there's more to do there, especially now that regulations are starting to lax, you know, across the country. So there's possibility to scale more quickly. And I think as far as like health problems go, this country definitely has a lot of health problems. And so hopefully people can help work on those. Yeah. Telemedicine is a no brainer. Somebody pitched me on uh, a veterinarian, like uh, remote vet work. And I was like, well, this is brilliant because you can just take out your phone, flip the camera and show them your dog or your cat and what's happening. <laughs> and everybody can knows how to take the temperature or to do a sample and stuff like that. And you'll just have people giving shots at home, right? Like, the, <laughs> yeah. I give my dog shots. Like, they give us the, you know, people can give themselves. Oh, you do? Yeah. I mean, it's not that wow. big of a deal. Like, we have a, you know, 13-year-old bulldog. We have to give some shots for pain and some other stuff and uh, joints and stuff like that. And, and we, I give the dog a shot every week. And it's not a big deal. I learned how to give a shot. Like, this is years ago. And... Uh, we've been doing it for two years or something. And I think that's going to be everybody's going to learn how to do this stuff. People have pulse, uh, what do they call them? Pulse oximeters to get their like percentage uh, oxygen on their finger. And mm-hmm. you know, if it goes yep. under 95, I think a doctor told me if it goes under 95, you got to go right to the hospital because your blood oxygen level is trending towards COVID. Yep. And those cost 30 bucks. Now everybody's got one of those at home. And if you don't, you should get one. Um And I know people who started buying oxygen machines like uh, that you would normally have if you were had emphysema or something like that. People are buying those proactively. So this is going to be a whole rugged individualist, you know, telemedicine at home. I think that's an incredible observation. Incredible. And so those are the two big areas, but I'm sure there are plenty of creative things. Like you mentioned, you know, your wife's dance 
dance classes online or whatever that, yeah. that people are thinking of that I have not even, you know, thought of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, people were paying a lot of money for, I think it's called Mirror or something. There's like a mirror with a cap yeah. and you can like do dance classes in it. And I'm like, well, that sounds really expensive and, and hard to do. But if you've already invested in a laptop and you know how to use Zoom, you don't need to buy any new hardware. You just pay 10 bucks a month to go to yoga classes. And that yoga instructor could have 100 people online and make $1,000 per class. Yeah, and right? no overhead, right? Like, no, and, and people's expectations towards you. You and I are here. If one of our kids jumped on our laps, we'd be like, oh, how great. Yeah, how are they doing in school? What's it like? You know, like that's the other thing that's been reset in my mind is with the, at work, it used to be embarrassing if your kids ran in. And now it's charming and expected, right? So yep. there's like a whole mental reset of, yeah, you know, we know you might not be wearing pants right now. We know you didn't take a shower. <laughs> we know, like, we're all in the same boat. Like, we didn't take a shower either. Like, it's totally cool. I did take a shower today, by the way. I just want to put it on record <laughs> that I did take a shower this week today. And I will take one next week. Hey, Elizabeth, this has been great. Thanks so much for sharing, uh, you know, all your experiences. And if people want to reach out to you, I assume your first name at hustlefund.vc? Yeah, Elizabeth at hustlefund.vc. There you go. I try to respond to everybody. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. Yeah, you're active at on the Twitter. 33. You're active on the Twitter. You're active on VC Twitter. That's right. <laughs> Have you been VC bragged yet? Have you been VC bragged or VCs congratulating themselves? Have they done that to you yet? They have, but it was for something really odd, like something, mm. I don't remember whether it was something I ate or something bizarre like that. Got it, got <laughs> it. And are you blocking them or are you laughing nah. in good fun? Yeah, it's it's weird. There are all these Twitter handles now that are not like real people or there's a real person behind it, but you have no no idea who they are. So like I'm talking to a chicken and I'm talking to like Yeah. It's some... all me basically. I've got six or seven instances of Windows oh, okay. on AWS and I've just <laughs> I've made all these personas and I'm just talking to myself on because I'm bored. <laughs> no, we I mean we had the Golden Sachs elevator back in the day, yeah. right? The GS yeah, elevator. Yeah. So it just come back. But I, the thing I find funny about the VC brags is that people are blocking it. And I'm like, yeah. how do you not have a sense of humor about making fun of venture capitalists yeah, as a venture capitalist or an angel investor? Like, you have to have a sense of humor about it. I don't I don't even understand that at all. It's like, <laughs> you know, what? what is the point of that? I don't understand anybody blocking anybody except for, like, people who are being, like, violent or, or racist harassing or harassing you or whatever, you. yeah. But, I mean, anybody who's joking or debating with you, I'm like, bring it. It's Twitter. It's just... 140 I know 280 characters like who is so precious that they need to block people you know like mix it up have fun you have fun on it okay listen uh fo follow not the drunk hippo but dunk hippo 33 patrick ewing's number and uh, elizabeth thanks so much for doing the pod and thanks you know for coming to all of our events for the last five or six years i really do appreciate it. i know the founders do um and uh if you're in the market for a supersonic jet. Go ahead and buy a boom. Put a put a deposit down on a boom supersonic. I think they're <laughs> only going to be like ninety million. Uh, but go ahead and put one down so that uh, we can return the fund for Hustle Fund. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thanks so much. Appreciate it. Stay safe. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. All right. Hey, and uh, just a special thank you to all the partners who make this podcast. Uh, function and support it. We have six or seven people here working full-time on the podcast. We do 150 or so episodes a year. We've got this week in startups.com slash Slack with 25,000 members in it. And I couldn't afford to pay this team if it wasn't for all these great sponsors and partners who have had for over a decade in some cases. Some of you have been with us two years, some of us 10 years. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. I hope we do a good job for you uh, with the ad reads. I always put my heart into it. 
And uh, I appreciate it. I really do because I know people are getting a lot of value in these scary times uh, and a lot of inspiration to keep going out there and creating jobs that we need in the economy and create startups that solve problems for people, especially in a challenging time like this. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all of my partners and sponsors who support the podcast. I really do appreciate it uh, from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of our team. We'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye.